Well, thank you all for coming this evening for this, the second visit in recent years by David. Um, I just want to mention a couple of things that are forthcoming that you might be interested in forthcoming by David. So this uh, paper will appear in two places. Uh, one, an edited collection by Eduardo Cadaver and, and now I'm going to have a difficulty in pronouncing this, Gabriela Nuzaelas. Uh, and that will be published by Princeton probably in 2014. So an edited collection called The Itinerant Languages of Photography. But it will also be appearing in David's own book called Postmodern Mimesis. And that is out next year? Uh, no, no, that's, that's going to be the, at least the year after. Uh, year after, okay. And then finally, the most immediate publication that will be coming out soon, next year, the next year yeah. will be Politics After Aesthetics, a monograph by David. There'll be about half an hour for questions at uh, the end of David's paper. If you can actually speak quite loudly when you ask your questions, because there is a mic at the front here which is recording the proceedings for a podcast. So your questions, in order that they be audible on that podcast, will have to be asked perhaps a little more loudly than you're used to speaking. So please... Uh, please endeavour to, oh, please remember to do that. Anyway, it's my pleasure to welcome David and his presentation, Why Painting Matters. Okay. Thank you very much for <laughs> Thank you very much for the introduction, Jonathan, and thank you to the forum for the opportunity to um, present this, this paper to you tonight. Uh, the paper uh, comes out of um, a debate which has taken place uh, about the nature and significance of photography. Um, and one which has a lot to do with deciding whether, you know, um, whether the, which takes place in the uh, question about art, about whether art is in fact artistic or whether it is an object. Okay? And one of the arguments I'll be working with is that that's in fact been a false argument. Uh, and that if we turn to the work of Francis Bacon, uh, we, we can discover actually another take on this whole issue, uh, which has to do with the appearance of facts. So the facts have a certain way of appearing, and it's not a question of deciding whether it's an object or whether it's something artistic. Uh, because the idea which is involved here, especially with respect to painting, is that we've had this confusion between art and painting. So if we think about painting as we immediately think what art is, that's, that's a certain tradition of thinking about painting. And it's something which uh, the work of Bacon uh, doesn't really have quite a strong part in anymore. So what I'm looking at is a different kind of painting which doesn't belong to this division or this question which sets up a conflict uh, which says that art is about whether art is an object or not and that that has now become um, a question for photography. So I'd like to introduce this, um, this, this problem by, by citing the, the work of um, uh, first uh, Walter Ben Michaels from an, from, an, from an essay called Photography or Fossils and Photography, uh, which then cites Michael Fried's essay on uh, art and objecthood from 1967. Um, first then, the question about the significance of painting as art underwent massive change in the 20th century as the full force of photography as the, uh, as the full force of photography as the dominant source of visual imagery took hold. With this shift, painting no longer held its ground as the decisive place for decisions about what art is. Thus, 
Walter Ben Michaels from an essay from an essay uh, entitled uh, Photography and Fossils writes the following it is in photography rather than painting that the most fundamental question about the limits of representation and the limits of the critique of representation have been made this is not a small claim it is a claim I want to address in this lecture, specifically the extent to which its terms and conditions are symptomatic of an unresolved conflict that painting bequeathed to photography, and which photography, in the desire for artistic status, was more than willing to accept. Michaels gives a history of his conflict that takes its cue from Michael Fried's Watershed 1967 essay, Art and Objecthood. Here is Michael's uh, citing, citing Freed. Oops. If the conflict in painting of the late 1960s, and here uh, Michael's quotes Michael Freed, was whether the paintings or objects in question are experienced as paintings or objects, the point of the photograph in the year since 1967 is that it has become the site on which this conflict takes place. The question about the painting has become in this way a question about the photograph, um, Michaels goes on to state. That is, the question of painting as art has simply moved over to photography and photography has inherited something that used to belong to the, to the, to the realm of painting. Now what is at stake in this is that history of art can be articulated around a single question which is simply, is it, is it an object or is it an art? If it's an object, then it opens up the whole realm of thinking about art in terms, especially of painting, and thinking in terms of the way that it uses objects, the way that the surface of the painting no longer maintains a, a flat surface. Uh, you can think of you know, Julian Schnabel's uh, expressionism, in which you have like half a dinner plate sticking out of a painting at some point, that you have a surface to the painting which is made up of objects, so that you no longer fall into the kind of sense of thinking about painting, in which painting has an illusionary surface which has a, a, the appearance of depth. In other words, you do not think about it according to a certain perspective upon art, which also reinforces the idea of perspectivism inside art. Okay? So instead you move towards that art, in fact, is an object. Okay? Now this... Setting the question of art as between these two possibilities, setting it up as this conflict, is to set it up as a question which, of course, art does not resolve. And then when art can no longer resolve it and photography takes it over, as, as, as Michaels uh, and Fried have been arguing, then you, set, you move the question over into photography. Okay, so photography then becomes a place where the question whether it is art or is an object is now being represented or presented to us. Okay, so what simply happened here is that uh, how you define art has simply become the means of defining the question of art for photography. Okay? Now what I'm going to be arguing tonight is in fact that um, there's another account of this. That you do not have to simply uh, articulate the question of the history of art as a decision between whether it's an object 
or whether it is or whether it is artistic or whether it belongs to art or whether painting belongs to art. In other words, there's another way of posing the question about painting, and that's what I'd like to pick up um, in this lecture. The history of art restricted art has been restricted to a question about whether what is produced in the history of art as painting is, an, is artistic or whether it is an object. That's the problem that we'll be discussing tonight. But I want to add another layer to this problem, a layer that will relocate this problem as a misdirected account of painting. To ask whether it is art or an object is not the right question to ask about what painting is and why painting matters. A layer that will relocate this problem so that we can no longer think of painting and photography as simply being repeated, or seeing this question repeated as we move from one media to another. For example, we could make the next step and say, okay, after photography, you know, let's look at like, video art. Okay, it poses the same question about whether it is about objects or whether it is artistic. About a question that can only be repeated as one media or another is allowed to wear the mantle of art, and none more, and none more so today perhaps on photography, as the title of a recent book insists, Why Photography Matters as Never Before. That's by, by Michael Fried. If photography is to pose a question of painting, then art can be defined as the essential unfolding of that same question over time. That is the question, is it art or is it an object? A definition that contains elements of a cryptic Heideggerianism as the history of art becomes the unfolding of an essential question. So that there's a question which is unresolved, which art picks up, and this question is then bequeathed over the years through different movements in art, and then becomes displaced uh, in 1967 into the question of photography if we follow Walter Benz Michael's um, argument. But what if this were not the essential question of painting? but only a question arising from the confusion that painting is synonymous with art, with a capital A kind of sense of art, with the concept of art. What if painting in the age of photography is already a critique of photography and a critique that's looking for a way out of this confusion between art and object as the essential question of what art is? In what follows, I will be exploring these questions as an essential prerequisite to understanding the distorted figuration in the work of Francis Bacon. What I will propose in this lecture is that in Bacon's painting, there is another and different account of photography's place in relation to painting, and it is a relation that no longer depends upon the terms used here, art and object, to demonstrate or to demarcate a transference of the end game of a tradition in painting to the photograph. As if once painting ends, then photograph picks up the mantle of what art wanted to be and preserves the question of what art has been. But in order to do that, one of the steps which is necessary is that we accept uh, a confusion between art and painting as if they are synonymous with one another. And to a large extent, in academic writing on art history, they have been synonymous with one another. And museums and galleries have taught us that they are synonymous with one another. But the question that I'm going to pose to you, uh, that's posed by Bacon, is that this may not be the case. 
And there may be another way to raise this question. So then, in Francis Bacon's painting, there will be another and a different account of photography's relation to painting. And the transference which is taking place between saying that art has this question and now photography has it, um, that's also being played out inside photography in the, in the a debate between whether photography is an index to what's real or whether photography itself is artistic. Okay, so the whole, the whole question of what photography is has taken over the same problem and simply, it's simply migrated over. Now, an image that I want to begin with here is one that Francis Bacon took of himself holding a camera, taking a photograph of himself in a mirror. Okay? Um, it's obviously a photograph. And at the end of the lecture, we're going to see another version of this, which is a painting. Okay? A, a part of the triptych that uh, Francis Bacon painted in 1974, in which he shows himself, hold, again, holding the camera. Uh, except you will see an eye in the photograph. You don't see an eye here. The head has been replaced by the camera in this image of himself, taken by the camera, through the mirror, and back to himself. This takes place, this photograph dates from three years after the, the kind of watershed date that Walter Ben Michaels referred to as 1967. It's then that a British painter, in this case, produces this self-portrait in a camera and then again produces a painting in 1974, which is based upon this 1970 photograph. It is well known that the photographic image played a significant role in Francis Bacon's visual vocabulary. However, even in the most extensive account of this role in Bacon's painting, in a book by Martin Harrison called In Camera, Francis Bacon, Photography, and Film, the photographic image remains illustrative of a working method. Photographs were used by Bacon, where other artists used sketches and drawings to prepare and compose their painting. As a result, photography becomes secondary to painting, while Bacon's understanding of photography is misread, in order to reassert the superiority of painting over photography. So you simply get, you know, photography is a threat to painting, so you reverse the whole issue and say painting now becomes superior to photography because someone like Bacon used photographs and used them the way that other artists use sketches. So then the painting re-emerges in the same kind of you know, dialectic of photography, so now on the same terms becomes more important than photography. While it is true that Bacon would dismiss the assault that certain practices of photography and film have made upon the image by turning it into a device of what Bacon refers to as illustration. This dismissal does not mean that photography only has a secondary role for Bacon. And this is part of a shift that we're going to try to do by following through on Bacon's work uh, tonight, is that Bacon, Bacon's account of photography actually is going to be a account of something in photography that the idea that the photograph is an index or that the photograph is illustrative completely misses, but which is still present in photography. So in this sense, Bacon learns something from photography, which then allows him to paint in the way that he paints. So what we've got is something that is normally not part of the vocabulary of discussing, paint, uh, discussing photography, 
that Bacon's going to take over as the basis for what he understands painting to be. Bacon insists that the illustrative role is something that passes from painting to photography and did so in a way that prevents the effect of the photographic image from being experienced. Consequently, Bacon's dismissal of the illustrative meaning of a photographic image is also a challenge to first, how photography has been understood, and second, a challenge to how painting has been understood. In other words, Bacon turns to photography in order to experience how the world appears in a visual image. It is this experience that forms the basis of how Bacon understands the, then understands the significance of painting. At stake in this interest in photography by Bacon is nothing less than the future of figurative painting in an age that turned increasingly towards abstraction as a photographic image took over the figurative role that painting had, had exhibited as a driving force of its history. Already, it is clear for Bacon, this, under, this understanding of photography will not be another opportunity in the competition to declare the end of painting, begun by a remark attributed to Paul Delaroche in 1839, the infamous, uh, infamous remark, from today painting is dead, uh, that, that Delaroche uttered after seeing the first daguerreotype, or to dismiss co photography completely, as Baudelaire attempted in the mid-19th century as well. Neither of these positions account for the appearance of the image in either painting or the photograph. They are merely variations on the illustrative purpose of art that Bacon will refuse and do so as a consequence of what photography does to the visual image. Rather than return to either Delaroche or Baudelaire to set the context for Bacon's engagement with the photographic image, I'd like to begin with the situation of photography within art history during the early years of Bacon's career. The following remark, made in, in the 1930s by William Coldstream, who would later serve as the head of the Slade School of Art in London for 26 years, photography is incorporated, incorporated into the history of art as a logical version of that history. Oops. Okay, this is a painting by Colstrom that was going to come. Colstrom remark, uh, remark is the following. It is true that the logical development of the mainstream of European painting has led to photography. After Degas, the camera. There is all variations in the sense that the whole history of art has built into it a logic which leads to the photograph. And, you know, this is kind of naively said by Delaroche in 1839, uh, when he says, you know, uh, you know after, after seeing the first daguerreotype, painting is dead. Uh, this kind of declaration then gets a more subtle variation in the 1930s, when we've got this kind of idea that there's something that's like the spirit of painting will travel into photography and be handed over to photography. It is precisely that movement that is going to be arrested by Bacon. Now, to get a sense of what this means, this is, this is where Coldstream is coming from. This is a painting by Coldstream, a uh, portrait of Hard Griffin from 1920. And if you might be able to see, if you look closely, there are lines here and other lines. It's, a, it's not quite sharp. You might see here like a cross, if you look very, very closely. Right? Um, his, his manner of painting, it takes Coldstream something like two years to do this kind of painting. He gets the exact position of the sitter. 
and marks it on the canvas by crosses and leaves the crosses on the painting. Uh, he, after a while, he did give this up. People complained. It's not, it's not quite aesthetically as nice as you'd like it to be. Right? It's not like anything of Etch-a-Sketch or something here, but it's, you know, it's a bit similar. Um, and to do this kind of painting, um, he would put a nail in the floor. So he'd always stand in exactly the same position vis-a-vis -vis the sitter every time that he came back to the painting to paint it. Okay? So you know, what, what's at stake and, what, and what's, what's the point of this? Right. This is a painting in which the exact ratio of depth marked on the, is marked on the flat surface by small vertical and horizontal lines that provide the coordinates for how to accurately capture the relation of different parts of the subject to one another. Now, this is not Picasso. Coldstream did not erase these, at least in his early years as a painter. By leaving these marks, Coldstream attempts to make clear the accurate sense of how one part of a figure relates to another. Photography relates this sense without any effort. It takes a you know, minimum of one thirtieth of a second, not two years. Photography illustrates this sense without any effort. Coldstream frequently took up at least two years to make this kind of painting and still had to leave the marks in, in place so that we are aware of the careful graduation of distance and relation present in the painting. It's not enough to paint it accurately. If you leave the marks on, it's hyper-accurate. Okay? It's like saying that, you know, it's like saying you're getting, getting a grid when we try and learn to draw and you've got a mark on the grid. It's two inches away up here from the shoulder and it's going to be one inch down here. But you have to make sure it's always the same scale that you're using. Otherwise, you end up with, you know, with a painting in which one of, the, one of the wrists is, you know, four times longer than the other wrist or forearm like that. And it's totally out of, out of perspective and totally out of measurement. By leaving the marks in place, Coltrim shows a subjection of art to the effect of photography. That is, it, the adaptation of painting to the accuracy of the photograph. And also an adaptation to the effect of photography as a medium whose technical superiority over the hand established the reference point for how a visual image is to be perceived. Now, after photography, you expect something from an image of the human body that you didn't necessarily expect beforehand from painting. Okay, there's highly accurate paintings, highly realistic paintings, but the photo photograph set a new image, for a new standard for what the image could demand. And we would repeat that demand ourselves. Although what Coltrane paints cannot be called photorealism, it imposes on the surface of painting a technology of perception. A technology of perception that is then presented as the task of painting. At least for, you know, for, for 26 years that he ran the Slade School, um, you know, this was the kind of expectation that was built into, uh, into, into what painting is. The illustration of the world is then an object to be captured in its exactitude. Against this, I want to, by way of introducing Bacon, to first deal with Gerhard Richter. Uh, you're probably aware of the extent to which Gerhard Richter uses photographs as a huge atlas of collection of images uh, that became the basis of some paintings, and, and not, not a, you know, quite a few paintings, but not not an exhaustive uh, uh, you know, set of paintings related to the atlas. I want to talk about one painting, um, one set by, um, by Gerhard Richter, 
these are photographs, okay, which are going to be the basis of these. Okay, this is the first one. If we run this back up, you see the bottom one, the photograph. And here's another one, one from the back, and then a blurred one. So I'm going to talk about what this, this set of, uh, of images. The photographs, uh, these are from Atlas Sheet uh, 575, the Atlas uh, project by, by Gerhard Richter, Sheet 575. Uh, they were versions of, uh, they were photographs which are versions of a painting which is called Lesende, which means a reading. So it's simply a picture of, of someone reading here, because the sketch will look like a newspaper. Photographs are used as the basis of both these paintings. And the painting is done in a way which reconstitutes the perception of the photograph. Which means that these two things are going to be, be at stake and at work here for, for what to make this look like a painting, which is also a photograph at the same time. You know, photographs have, have, have a quality about them that paintings sometimes do not have, is that you have areas which are out of focus and areas which are in focus. And you have a very exact way in which the light falls. It's, it's not like the light falling in Caravaggio and you can't figure out where the light's coming from. Uh, in a photograph, you always know where the light is coming from. And the, and the, the graduation of the light upon the subject is also telling you this is a photograph because you're not going to meet it in exactly the same way in a painting. The light is going to be played with in a painting more, more frequently and not with the kind of sense of exact rays coming down at an angle which then are reflected off something else. Um, this, then, is going to be the basis of paintings which constitute the perception of the photograph. It's also going to take place with an attempt, uh, Richter has written about this, with an attempt to make the photograph an object. Gerhard Richter from the uh, Daily Practice of Painting writes the following. First, only photographs can be objective because they relate to an object without themselves being objects. Photographs are indexed towards an object, but the photograph itself is not, doesn't inhabit the same world as the objects inhabit. It doesn't take place in the same world as, as the way they take a photograph of a stone. The, the painting is, the photograph is not a stone. Okay? Um, however, there's an important qualification coming up here. I can also see them as objects. Okay? They're not objects but they can be seen as objects. They can be perceived as objects and even make them into objects by painting them for instance. So the move in which he makes between the photograph of the woman and by making it into a painting is that he's given what exists as a photograph the materiality of a painting. In other words, it exists as a material object. Whereas the photograph doesn't quite seem to have this, 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 this state of status to the extent that it's always understood in relationship to an object. And, and this kind of, when you say photographs of human beings or photographs of, of, of you know, buildings or something like that, the meaning of the photograph is also related to the fact that the building is there. Okay? And every photograph that you take in some way you know, has an index into it. You, there's a reason why you took the photograph. You know, when you go and visit the Eiffel Tower, it's going to be you standing in front of the Eiffel Tower. You know, so you got Two, two indices here. One is the background, which is the building, and the other is the fact that you're standing in front of it. Right? You don't go to Paris and just take photographs without you being in some of them, right? 
this is, this is what this is what the snapshot and photograph is, and, and what the whole idea of tourism and the availability of, of images to us is about as well. So, the question Richter poses by this is what I want to come to first. There is one thing that makes painting look like a photograph. Exact relation and the consistent fall of light and shadow. And this is true for both of the paintings that Richter produces uh, from, from these, these photographs. This is the first one. That's a photograph on the top left, and that's a painting on the right. And again, here you have the photograph on top right, and we have a change here. We have a blurred surface to, to, the, to the painting. Both have the same title, Reading or Lesende. There is a distortion taking place across this sequence. However, compared to Bacon, it's rather timid. The blurring is an after effect of painting. The means by which this is produced by Richter is you have the painting and then you take um, like a squeegee across the soft surface of the painting and you blur the surface of the painting. So what you have is the added layer of the blurring on top of something which would have looked like this. The object is seen through the distortion of this blur, but it does not change fundamentally the underlying image. The blur is an escalation of painting as photorealism. What looks, poses as a question, what looks more like a photograph than a photograph which is badly taken? You know, when you take a photograph and you shake the camera, that's a photograph. Okay? You can always tell the difference, right? A photograph which is bad, the photograph which you mess up with, a photograph that you do this with too quickly when you're taking a photograph, and everything in the background is blurred, and the person's on a bike or running past you is exactly sharp, right? Those are photographs. Photographs that you take of the floor accidentally when you're taking your camera out. Right? Those are photographs. Right? Nothing looks more like a photograph than a photograph which has not got a sharp image. Right? It is out of focus. So what we've got taking place here is we have the blurred out of focus, the whole, whole image is out of focus, as if this was a photograph taken which the focus had not been set correctly. Okay? So when, when, when Richter paints this and blurs it, you get something that the camera excels at. Okay? There's, not many, there's not many people in the history of art who deliberately paint out-of-focus paintings. Right? I mean, the, the, the norm usually is, even in landscape, it kind of gets, you know, you just can't quite see it so clearly because it's far away. But that not seeing it clearly is, is set, set against a very, very sharp background. Or if the photograph is like an interior uh, by Vermeer or something like that, you know, try to find something which is not in focus. You know, think, go all the way back to the Arnold Feeney portrait, right? Go and have a look at it in the National Gallery. See if you can see anything out of focus in it, right? Everything is in focus. Whereas in a photograph, it's very rare that absolutely everything is in focus, unless it's a photograph which is taken in a very, very small area. Otherwise, you've got areas of out of focus which are telling you that it's a camera. Right? It's a camera which is taking this image. So what I'm getting at here is the ways in which the image is constructed for us uh, in photography, which is different from the way that the image exists in painting. 
What looks more like a photograph then than a photograph that is badly taken? The blurring which takes place here is actually presenting us with a paradoxical account of painting. It looks like a photograph, but it's not a photograph. It is a photograph and it's not a photograph. It is a painting and it is not a painting. And this paradox has a function in how Richter's understanding painting, or at least is reflected in this understanding. And that is that the one which, which, which is, is fairly constant. Paradox appears at the moment where, where tradition has to be sustained at its very limit. Paradox appears at the moment that a tradition is going to be sustained at its very limit in which what threatens a tradition is set in irreconcilable conflict with something which is its absolute opposite. So photograph and photography are present at, presented by Richter here in this sense as a paradoxical account of painting. Okay? Which means that the question about whether this is just merely an object because it's blurred, or whether it's a painting and it's an object because it's a painting, you are presented with the impossibility of making the decision between these two. Okay? So you're put in a position of a paradoxical work. Which means that the whole question about whether it's art or an object is being repeated by Richter. Now that question I'm arguing tonight belongs to a tradition of thinking about art which belongs almost exclusively to our sense of art history. Okay? And to preserve that question and then claim that photography is, as art has then simply been to take over the question of painting as a question of photography. Bacon is going to pose a question for us if, about whether the image in the photography is not already different from that tradition of thinking about art history. That it's no longer resolvable into a conflict between art and the object. So let's move on tonight to the, uh, the main figure for tonight. Um, these, are from, these remarks I'm going to work through now are from interviews by Francis Bacon, which were published in 1987. The first one states, Photography has changed this whole thing of figurative painting and totally altered it. And it's important to remember here that you know, um, Bacon is still a figurative painter. He's not an abstract painter. He doesn't doesn't go in for the kind of you know, uh, you know, sense of you know here's here's a white painting like Malevich. Okay, he's totally just white canvas or totally grey canvas, uh, or, or or what or what Richter does when he, when he does eight canvases which are uh, shades of grey. Okay, it's almost as if there's a narrative going from one one to the next, but it's a slightly different colour. Okay, so you've got this basic limit. He's got this idea of you know working at the very limit of painting in a most uh, an abstract way in Richter. Uh, in Bacon, it takes place in a much more physical and visceral way. Uh, Bacon's images are not images that you turn away from easily. You'll turn away from them quickly sometimes, but they're not images that will go away very easily. Whereas you can go and look at um, you know, eight canvases by Richter, which you know, are, all, are all shades of grey, and you can go to the next room. Right? It's quite easy to move on. Um, the idea, the idea has passed. Has, you know, you can pass by the idea very quickly. Uh, Bacon, Bacon's painting is much more visceral in the sense 
but it's very, very, it's, it, you know, it has a kind of emotional relationship to you that is very, very difficult just to conceptualize and then go on, I've got the idea, okay, and go on to the next room and so on. Because the next room is probably going to be even more physically intimidating of a Bacon painting. Um, so I want to work through first this remark. Photography changed figurative art is the idea which lies behind here. What does this mean? In order to elaborate it, the second quote on this page. One sense of appearance is assaulted all the time by photography and by the film. When one looks at something, one is not looking at it directly, but one is also looking at it through the assault that has already been made on one by photography and film. 99% of the time, I find that photographs are very much more interesting than either abstract or figurative painting. I've always been haunted by them. What is haunting in the photograph for Bacon is what he will call their slight remove from fact. What is haunting in photograph then is the fact that it's not exactly a fact. But there's something which takes place in a photograph which takes it away from the kind of indexical understanding which presents an image which is an image of a fact in the world. This slight remove is then described later by Bacon in a remark which says that this, uh, that this, this slight remove from fact is going to return him violently to fact. Now, the violence of that return is what constitutes the image, in, of the image of painting in Bacon. That's why the images and figures have a distortion. It's a violence of the fact which is present in the distorted images that Bacon presents, at, usually at the, you know, as, as the main point of reference of his canvases. It is this violent return that I want to emphasize as Bacon's in, interpretation of the photographic image and its presence in the history of the 20th century, as well as the importance of Bacon's account of how it appears in painting. For Bacon, painting allows the photograph to be seen as an image rather than an object. Complete difference to Richter here. Richter insists that the photograph can be turned into an object by painting, by painting it. For Bacon, painting returns to a violence that belongs to the appearance of the image and that appearance is also present for Bacon in the photograph, despite the use of the technological apparatus of photography as one more means of confirming the history of illustration that defines Western art as a form of historical and technical process, uh, progress in the production of images. Bacon, then, is engaged in a project to rescue photography from the history that leads from painting to photography, which says that painting is always taken over and superseded by photography as we look back across the history of art. Bacon seeks in the photograph what already works against the dominant idea of photography as illustration, but which the reception of photography has rendered unreadable to us, has rendered unreadable within the photographic image, hence Bacon's habit, which I'll show you in a moment, of taking photographs that he would use for paintings and tearing them. Just tearing out what he wanted in the photograph. He wasn't interested in anything else. 
You would also have expensive books, uh, like the photographic images of Muybridge, you know, the locomotion photographs. And he would take, he'd just tear out of the book what he wanted. And pictures of anatomy, he'd just tear out of the expensive anatomy books the image that he wanted. Uh, it was a total sense of disregard for our kind of, you know, respect. It's a, it's a beautiful book. It's, you know, we should not do this to these kinds of things. It's what libraries hate, right? Um, the sense of Bacon, then, is that the image can be decontextualized. There's something that takes place within photography which already decontextualizes the central image at the same time that it presents a context around it. Okay? So what Bacon will be getting at here is that sense of decontextualizing. The photograph always shows something in the world. Right? Bacon takes the image of the photograph out of the world in which the photograph gives it to us. This slight remove from fact of which Bacon speaks leads us to another statement in which he says, I want to isolate the image much further to take it very much away from the photograph. Now, the current, one of the most famous perhaps examples of this, if you think about not in such terms of photograph photography in Bacon, but the, the series of paintings, the Pope paintings, right, which are based on Velasquez. Uh, Velasquez is a painting of Pope Innocent XI. That is where Bacon is also engaging with, in fact, images of art because um, he worked off a postcard of Velasquez. Right? It did not, it's not based upon the actual you know, painting so much as, 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 having, as going to, going to the, uh, Madrid and studying the painting and then doing his own paintings of it. He worked off a photograph of the painting already. But what's, what's important about this is the fact that what his paintings do is to isolate one thing in, this, in the Pope series, the open mouth. If you're, you know, you call this from Bacon's... It's, there's, 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 there's quite a few uh, sequences of this in, in Bacon's work through the 50s. Um, and this isolation is where I want to begin to talk about how he understands photography. And I want to take one of the perhaps most famous examples of it, which Bacon saw. Uh, Bacon saw, I believe, in Paris. Um, I believe he saw this in Paris. Um, it's, a, it's a still image from, from um, Eisenstein's 1925 battleship Potemkin. Yes, this is out of context. Okay, this is quite horrible, aren't it? But it's it's the context is that um, uh, the Russia the Russian people are being pushed down steps uh, by by soldiers at this point, and this is a picture which is taken after about a, a, a pram with a baby in it has been let go down down the steps, and suddenly from the large picture we cut to this one. Okay, so already within the film, what you see taking place is the film is acting upon its own scene and isolating, tearing something out of that scene. And what it tears out of that scene is then focused upon the open mouth. And this is done in a silent film, which is important to remember for, for a relationship to painting. You do not hear the scream. And it's actually more effective if you do not hear it. What Bacon presents across his paintings is the isolation and dominance of this kind of image. The image in Eisenstein is already isolated from the narrative sequence and history uh, of the film in which it occurs. 
And, uh, you know, to use the English word that describes its effect, it operates within the film as a still. And in Spanish, there's actually a very uh, word for, for still in Spanish is fotograma, which actually captures this very, very nicely for us. It's like, it's like, listening, it's like listening to someone speak, and then suddenly, you know, the person just says H. H took place in the previous sentence somewhere, right? But suddenly it's been ripped out of context and it's forced upon you in a way to try to understand it again. You know, so if it's simply say, you know, T. Right? Where does that fit into the discourse? This is the effect of it, and this is where it's very, very nice. I mean, the word still works in some ways in relationship to movies, but um, uh, the Spanish, the Spanish in some ways gives a very, 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 very kind of tight understanding of what this is. Um, in the sense that it's something which constitutes the image, but when it's taken out of its context, we do not quite know where to put it back into the sequence anymore. This is what Bacon does with, with this is what he learns from photography, and this is what he does with his painting. In Potemkin, the cinematic still is isolated within the narrative film, isolated from the steps that provide the source of movement and action in the sequence, and which all culminate then in this image. This is the still as the fact of an appearance. Okay? It is the fact, for example, in the sense of you know, a letter, it's a fact that language is made up of letters, so we always understand the letters together, making up a word, and then we get another sense of a meaning which the word indicates or illustrates. The letters by themselves do not frequently do that. And if you take the letter out of its context, uh, if you were to you know, have to listen to someone uh, who just give you all the letters of the talk as a kind of surrealist game, give you all the letters of the talk for the evening, and you would, had to go home and reassemble the talk from the letters. You know, this is the effect that we're dealing with in this case. The scream from this, uh, from this image is well known. In the series of studies, Bacon painted after Velasquez's painting of Pope Innocent X. But... Rather than discuss this sequence, I want to turn to a 1953 triptych. To read its place in a set of images that with their monochrome palette and black background reveal a photographic composition. It's almost as if we're dealing with portraits here. First some preliminary remarks on, on, these, on, this, on this triptych. They're all in black and white, they're all in the form of a portrait. It's also a triptych, which sets up the question of the relation between each of these images. There are three different moments in time which in the triptych will be understood and viewed simultaneously. They're also an interrelation of different material. There's a curtain which you may be able to see a little bit in the background coming out a little bit more over here. It shows its effect here on, on the bars which are coming down. Um, there's a curtain. There's a color of the paint which is used, um, which is fairly consi is just consistent across each, 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 of the, uh, each of the paintings. And one of the main differences we're going to note here is both the image which is turned to its side, the two lines which come across here, and the sense of something which is not quite in the right position. Right, it's almost like if it's a chair, then the chair is at 45 degrees or something like that. But there's something that you can't quite position. It, has a f it, it intimates to us that it's a rectangle of some kind. 
which is also the way that we understand and view what a photograph is. We always think about it as, rect you know, as rectilinear in some ways, um, and, 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 true, and largely true for painting as well, but not exclusively so. There is no narrative, however, linking each of these photographs, or each of these, these portraits of one another that look like photographs. The heads do not look at each other. They do not regard each other in any way, but look away from the, the painting as if you know, this one looks towards us over here, this one seems to look over towards that one, and then the third head doesn't even look out. Each image in the left and centre panel, panels is isolated from any context whatsoever. What Bacon does is simply to present the image separated from any contextual understanding which would decide what its place is in the world. Only the right-hand panel introduces additional material in the form of what looks like the back of a chair and two parallel lines. In the centre panel and right panel, the head is presented with an open mouth scream, as in the scream of the nurse in Potemkin. The scream here is a visual image whose violence is present in its denial of sound. What it presents is what painting, photography and silent cinema cannot illustrate. Sound. Which is what connects it into something which has a, a different kind of existence in the world. The isolation which takes place here is itself a violent act, an act of cutting the photograph, of cutting out of the photograph everything which positions the subject within that photograph and the world it represents. The question of location in space is here a question of the meaning of the image which no longer requires a specific location in order to become significant. What Bacon's isolation of the photographic image forces us to confront is that the meaning of the image is found in its violent relation to context. This violent relation is the fact of its appearance, to use Bacon's phrase. And where it occurs in photography, it produces image, images that will be appropriated in more and more contexts by Bacon. What Bacon does are images that can be appropriated in more and more contexts. The photograph can always place something. When you take a photograph, it's always a subject placed in a certain way. Right? You can see where it is and what it does. When you're doing a portrait or putting a position in relationship to, to a building, you always know the set of point of reference that the photograph is taking. There are photographs, when you go to Man Ray or something like that, you can do photographs which are not photographs, right? Which are just uh, images which are, on, uh, which are on photographic paper. Okay? But those are not photographs in the same way that they're taken to look in order to position or place something. In order to provide, there's always a certain kind of context which will go into a photograph when it's understood as, an, as a means of illustration. Here is an example now of how, ben, of how, of how um, Bacon works with this kind of, of an image in, photograph, in photography. Um, these are, these are the close-ups which might give you a certain sense of the, the image here. 
probably not doing as well as the screen. Um, here's a photograph of the head of George Dyer, which is taken by John Deacon in 1964. Here's what Bacon did to the photograph. Look at the contextual difference. What happens when you shift over to this one? Yeah, it's almost like you know, the head's been cut off. It's already cut off in the photograph. It's the same photograph. But the effect of a human being in the context of this photograph is what Bacon has drawn to our attention when he does this. When he makes, it's just, he's just cut out from the tie all the way around the head, all the way around the face. There's something, there's something a little more unsettling about this, isn't it? This one, this one does not have the same reassurance that the context provides for us. So what, part of what Bacon is getting at here is this contextualization, which the photographic image has taught us as a means of being reassured that this, in fact, is a photograph, which is a photograph of the world, changes as soon as the head suddenly gets this, this other background, which is put on it here, uh, Bacon took these and pasted them on paper. Okay, so this is this how Bacon's understanding this already. And it's the exact same kind of movement that we saw taking place from the, the triptych that we just looked at from, from 1953. So the effect of the removal of the head is to produce a sense in which, or uh, an image in which there is no distraction of context, no distraction of the world placing it in a perspective that is measurable. This presents us with the fact of the head's appearance. We see the head in its appearance. This is the fact that the photograph is offering us another way to read by going to context and forgetting about what it is that the photograph is also presenting to us. This is what Bacon does. This is, this is the purpose of this cutting out. It's not simply a sketch, like a sketch that a, that a painter does. There's a violent act which he has enacted upon the photograph in order, in the sequence, to let us see what the photograph already does, but which we've been trained by visual images, by photography, to see them as illustration of something else, and we do not see this anymore. This is not appearance based upon the world, but is all we've seen in the rectilinear framing of a photographic image. This action produces this painting from 1971. Again, the head is placed in isolation, but even more than this, the sequence ends in the turning and distorting of the figure of the head, which we didn't quite have here. But if you think about the movement from the photograph to this as already as a distortion of the photographic image, which is already in the photographic image, Bacon takes it one more step in the painting and distorts the image which remains. To explain this distortion, I want to come to um, an experiment that, uh, that Bacon had kind of undertaken with photography. This is a photograph again of George Dyer. It's a double exposure. And this is how it survived Bacon's hands. This is, you know, he wasn't interested so much in this part, or this part just got ripped off or destroyed. Uh, as, as you'll know, Bacon's studio was, 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 was an utter mess uh, of, of papers on the ground and papers on the floor, which were, which were uh, you know, being destroyed. This is taken in the studio. 
um, there are two heads here. It's a double exposure. Okay. So two moments of time taken separately, which are then produce an image in which the two temporal moments are together okay, in, in the print. Here's some de- here's a detail of it, including on the figure and then closing in on the actual head itself. The double exposure photograph presents us with a turning, a turning of the head in a way that can never be seen by the human eye. You see it one after another. That's where the photograph is taken. Okay? You're not going to see the head in this position and then in this position at the same time. That's not real. Okay? So there's already something here about what he's done uh, to produce this as, as, as a kind of working, working copy for, um, for the, the painting which is to come of this, and which shows that the, tempor- the distortion which is at work here is one which is also a temporal distortion. What he's interested in is that the image exists in two places at the same, uh, at different times, but painting produces, he's going to produce a painting in which the two different temporal images occur on the same moment. Okay? So you have a distortion of your measurement of time as a way of deciding what is the significance of this image at this point in time or this point in history. For Bacon, there are going to be two different moments and more moments, in fact, in some, in some paintings, which are going to be presented at exactly the same moment within the canvas. Now this is an ability that painting in some ways has always had. If you look at the kind of great narrative history, historical kind of paintings, you'll see different events presented in the same temporal frame of the painting, as if you could read a narrative from them. But painting always presents them at the same moment. So what we have here is is, 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 is kind of movement of distortion which takes place across this. And there's another kind of version of this one as well, uh, which is here. And if you remember a remark, what I want to do is to distort the thing far beyond appearance, but in the distortion to bring it back to a recording of appearance. So the way to understand this is not to think, okay, you know, uh, did George Dyer look like this once? Okay? That's not the point. It's not like Picasso's remark about his painting of Gertrude Stein. Which he said, uh, one day she will look like that. Right? Uh, not, not meaning that Gertrude Stein is going to look like a Picasso painting, but she's going to be remembered by his painting. Okay? So it's not a question of, of, you know, uh, of going to reality and finding out that this is, you know, well, did Gertrude Stein actually end up looking like that? Well, uh, the way that we understand um, what Picasso was saying is precisely that the image which is not an index of the real person in this case, is in fact how we are going to understand what is real. In other words, it's something which has been cut out of what is real and handed down to us. It's no longer attached to Gertrude Stein, but it's an image which has been passed down as to be understood as the, as, as, as the way that it produces an appearance of the person. And it's the fact of that appearance which Bacon understands as what separates the image from what's index, or what it is an index of. So the fact of appearance is then a form of temporal and visual distortion. I want to come now to a uh, even more complicated version of this one. Again, you see the same head, and it's George Dyer, again and again. 
Uh, the body this time is also represented in several distortions and several displacements between what look like mirrors, which are presenting it here, and mirror. And uh, it looks like a mirror here. Could also be that sense it's almost a canvas which is coming out like that. But then you can't quite place it because we have a line here and a line there, which seems to suggest it's a flat surface at the same time. Okay. So you've got two things which don't, which can't exist real in reality, which are taking place here, which are all being produced by the use of these lines, which seem to cut across moments at which we think we've got a sense of perspective of depth, which is indicated to us by line, but Bacon uses the line which gives us a sense of perspective in order to distort the whole notion of perspective itself in a way that it no longer can be reasserted and we have a model of the, we know this is in the foreground, we know that's in the background, and we know these other elements on the side have a specific spatial relationship to the central image. So what has taken place here is that the notion of space as deciding uh, depth, and when we decide depth, it's thinking about, you know, if I'm here and I have to move back here, that's a temporal move, right? I can't be in two places at the same time. This painting is using the kinds of lines which decide what the meaning of perspective is and the meaning of depth is in order to refuse that at the same time. Okay. This is why you get these boxes around all the Pope paintings, right? And if you begin to look, if you begin to try and say, okay, where's the back of the box, where's the front of the box, you can't. Where's the corner? Well, is it a corner which is coming towards you, or is it a corner which is going away from you? You can't make these decisions. So what Bacon has done by that, uh, and that notion of a box, which we'll, we'll see in another, another painting coming up shortly, what he's done by that is been taking the framing, which is rectilinear which is part of the way that photography has taught us to see, even more than painting. Right? Because uh, you know, every time you get a photograph back, what shape is it? It's always a rectangle. Okay. It's always some kind of a rectangle. So we have here a concept gives some concept of broken with a partial image. We have a one-dimensionality of the circular red floor. We get a presentation of flatness in the photograph, a flatness off a photograph, but without any sense of trying to get, you know, there's a street in the back or something in the background like that, which gives us a sense of depth. There is no then illusion of depth that comes from a precise relationship of objects to one another, as in photography or as in that that painting by Coldstream that we looked at at the beginning. In other words, what has taken place? is a distortion of relation which gives us both a sense of time and a sense of space. Bacon's distortion is about the refusal of one time, another time in relationship to one another, and one space and one space and another as what constitutes the visual image. The photograph is always a moment of isolation that can be appropriated by its rectilinear framing in order to show us something which is in the photograph and something which is, of course, always outside the photograph at the same time, right? When you take a photograph like the one of Dyer's head, there's a building in the background, you know the building continues outside the photograph, okay? There's always that sense that the world continues from from that frame. Uh, Bacon's frame already is distorted inside the painting, which means that it's already a reflection on the external frame that we've used to understand. And part of this is you know, carried over on this, and also what looks like a canvas inside the painting as well. To conclude, I want to come back to where we began tonight. 
but with a slight removal from fact as well in a kind of Baconian moment. It's a painting of Francis Bacon with a camera. It's as if it's in a mirror, but it's a painting, so it cannot be in a mirror, right? So what we have already removed from us is the context which allows us to read this as a photograph, which is it's a reflection. Okay? A painting like this cannot be a reflection. We're given no mirror. So we're put in this kind of distorted position of a spectator of having to think, okay, there must be a mirror, so we're actually seeing this looking through the painting to the mirror, which is then looking back again. Right? So you've got several temporal moments there, which are all separated from one another, and it gives us a nice little narrative saying, here's the cause, there's the effect, which is a mirror, which produces another effect, which is a painting. There's none of that there. There is none of that there. That's radically different from, if we go right up back up to the beginning, to this one. Yeah? Yeah. Like a radiator in front, you know where he stands. Yeah. Come back to the end. Oops. Where did I get the view? Oops. F5. F5, okay. <laughs> Thank you. There we go. I found the end button this time. Okay. Um, the image of photography according to Bacon. This is what we're looking at in this painting. Incomplete rectilinear angles. Yeah. This part of something. What is it part of? It's not given. It's black on the inside. We have other lines, which because of this line seems to suggest there should be some definition for the line somewhere. But the line should meet a corner and keep us satisfied and happy that it's actually framing something. Another line here, which has no framing whatsoever, and we have this kind of reflection in the, in the shadow of all, it's like a light bulb. In one of the other parts of the triptych, there's a light bulb, and I think it's in the left, left panel of this triptych. Um, the shadow also doesn't conform well to the figure. Right? And what's, you know, photography is the capturing of light and shadow, right? Here we've got an image on the floor, which doesn't seem to be really quite in line with it. You've got this elbow which is accentuated out like this, holding it, and it doesn't seem to be quite as accentuated in the bottom. It seems to be like more like a puddle rather than a person in the bottom. Um, such is the fact of the image that the history of art has conspired or will conspire to kind of recontextualize this according to its own facts. Now, part of those own facts would be, go back to the photograph, and there must be a mirror. Right? You can factualize this, and factualization is about putting different temporal moments into place. What Bacon is arguing is that facts appear in their distortion of time and space. They are given to us, and they are always in isolation. Even when they're given in a context, Bacon is arguing in this painting that these facts are always something which is, has an isolated and turning away from the context in which they are given. And the sense of turning away here is a sense of distortion. Torsion in the sense of turning. Um, this history that history of art would give to us, um, according to its own facts, to its own understanding of the image, is a history that demands that each image of heart, art can be arranged like those books which, when the pages are flipped, 
give the appearance of a continuous action as if we were watching a play on the stage of art and just slipping through the different images of art and they form some kind of history. In this painting, it is the camera that takes away any face from this history. And remember that the word for face is also figura here. In other words, the question of the figurative is being presented to us by Bacon, not being given up, but being presented by its distortion by the, the machinery, the technological apparatus in front of it. It's been taken away, this, in the camera that takes away here, the camera takes away any face from this history and leaves us without the kind of indexical image, the face, the figura, that already resists both the representative mode and the limit of representation on which the claim of photography is now the ground on which the significance of painting is being decided. And we're also being taken away from the mirror, which reassures us that there is a reflection of something in painting. Bacon keeps us at a distance from illustrative photography in this painting. Here we return to the figure of photography in the shape of a, of a photographer who is now isolated from the context provided by any mirror, by any desire that the image conform to this context. This, in fact, would be to construct a theatre around this in which we see the figure of Bacon playing his part. We do not have the theatre here. We do not have a proscenium or some kind of framing of this which would reassure us, yes, there's something else in, the, in, this, in this frame which would explain to us why Bacon is doing this. The painting, in this case, is not a mirror of the photograph. Bacon does not provide us with an illustration of photography, but he provides us with the way in which a photograph already isolates the image that it presents to us, and it is that which Bacon paints. Thank you very much. Thank you. So we have uh, around 15 minutes for questions. If you can make them as concise as possible, please. Yeah. Uh, I have a question. Yeah. I have a question for you about photography. Mm -hmm. Is that you talk about photography as being very illustrative? Do you think that photography can be not illustrative? Yeah, I think Bacon certainly thinks so. Um, it's 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 a way that we learn to read these kinds of things. If photography gets taken over and certain perceptions are given to us in a way that we begin to uh, think that, you know, oh, we see a photograph of something, you think, okay, there's a building in it, so what are you going to think about the building? Where, where does the building belong? Does it belong in the photograph, or does it belong in the scene that the photograph is, is an image of? So if you think, you know, begin to think of the latter, then we, we have all these photographs, and they seem to reiterate something which, you know, it's being captured, some object which has been captured by them. The argument that Bacon is making is once the photograph has been taken like that, uh, something else has happened to what is presented in the photograph. And the photograph presents us with something which is both different to its background, but at the same time is being dominated by that background when we try to understand it. So you don't see this element anymore. So what he's saying at that point is, you know, Bacon is saying, yes, there are photographs which are not like that. Photo he's saying a photography is not like that that what you get there in photography is a capturing of the fact of the appearance, but not the appearance of the fact. Okay? It's the way that it appears, 
that the photograph is taught us something. Uh, in, uh, a, a photograph can teach us something about the way that appearance happens. And that's what he goes and, and does in these kinds of these kinds of paintings. So this is this is in some ways an exaggerated distortion of what photography does. So what he's thank what he's really doing is rescuing photography from the illustrative understanding. Yeah, and the second part is yeah. it's uh, nowadays with uh, programs like Photoshop yeah. that is like I mean not not doing the same as painting but it's mm -hmm. a post production of this of the taken photograph. So it, it's mm -hmm. a taken photograph. At the same Photoshop, you can do like the back, black yeah. background, and even deform the figures mm -hmm. and do whatever possible you can. Put other figures, mm -hmm. do mm, a different but very similar to what was doing this kind of of, mm -hmm. of painting mm -hmm. from photography. Then post editing. Yeah. Okay. The, the, you know, your, your, your question poses one other question: When that's done in Photoshop, what does it look like? Does it look like a photograph still? It depends how you do it. Yeah, well, you could do it really bad. You can put, you know, the sky, the sky. And we're learning it's always purple or it's always sunny or something like that, right? You know? <laughs> it depends. I mean, I mean, what I'm getting at is it's a presentation of the way that it presents itself to you. If it's, it's being photoshopped in order to make it look like a better photograph, then there's no difference, right? It's just like, you know, I, 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 you know, I wanted to take this photograph when the sun came out, okay, but it didn't come out. So I went to Photoshop and I put the sun in the background in a blue sky. This is the photograph I wanted to take, all right? But it's not the photograph I got. So Photoshop allows me to, you know, instead of having to wait a month for something like that to get the photograph I want, I can actually go and doctor it in certain ways, which makes it look. But I'm presenting it to you as a photograph still. Right? And you could have taken the photograph the way that it's been Photoshopped if you'd had the chance for light and stuff and so on to come at the right time. You could have taken it that way. You see, see what I'm getting at? Is that you, you can do this with, with Photoshop, but what do you end up with? You end up with a photograph still. Painting is something, something else. Painting, painting is a line, for example, you can take a, a Photoshop, you can, you, can present, you can present the image in a better way. What Bacon's done is simply to say, in, in the act of painting, okay, in the act of distorting of the figure, this takes place in the same temporal moment. It's not something which is done afterwards. It's not something which is done at a later moment. It's not something which is done by, say, combining two photographs to one another, which is putting two points in time together. When you're in front of a painting, it's not presenting itself to you as with, this is a photograph of what uh, Bacon looked like with a camera in front of his face, right? Uh, but the way we did this is we took a camera and we photoshopped it and put it in front of Bacon's face. That's not how painting works. That's not what painting is. Uh, and, that's, and that's why the difference matters. Yeah. Yeah, just, just a simpler example as Gerard Richter. Uh, yeah. I'm going to be very simplistic. I'm a painter as well. But yeah. You could do that at Photoshop. I mean, you could take the photograph and blur it. Mm -hmm. Even horizontally, you could yeah. blur it. Mm -hmm. Then you could go to a photographic process and choose a very particular paper and a very particular way of printing it mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. it kind of... Um, Painful, or, or you can make it look. You can make you can make it look like that. Not look like painting, but has a yep. very particular materiality. Mm. It's not a photograph, or it's not a screen, but it mm. has a particular materiality. Mm. What I mean, it's a different process, but it's 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 a it's a a blur 
mm-hmm. in between. I don't know. It's a blur in between, but the question, you know, you're right to use the word blur, and that's the whole problem, is that with someone like Richter, there's, there's still a blurring of this important, important question which art history has picked up. Uh, that is it, you know, is painting art or is it an object? Okay. Now he's he, in some ways, you know, he physically you see the blur on Richter, but there's also the blurring of the concepts which are taking place there as well. What I'm arguing is that Bacon's not blurring the concepts. He's showing that there's a distortion which is more fundamental to painting. Uh, but you know, you could say in this case that Richter is someone who's working at the limit of certain art historical understanding of painting, and he's engaging with that, but he's not changing it. I think Bacon's changing it. I think Bacon did change it. Any other questions? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, I was wondering, in reading the interviews of Bacon, he talks about the role of the unconscious mm-hmm. and how it's, he has the image, but it's in his departure from the image when the unconscious kind of comes up that he gets closer to what it is that he's depicting. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, I guess, that tension. So is there a point in that process in which photography and image he's working from becomes completely secondary to the, kind of the forces that's propelling him to paint? Yeah. I would say what he does with photography is parallel to what he's doing with painting. He's not, he's not putting you know, photography into a secondary position. I mean, he's, he's, one of his other remarks is he's haunted by photography. But you know, if, if you're going to be haunted, if you're going to be haunted by the photographic image, you're no longer understanding it in relationship to something which is you know, real in the world that you can reconcile the image to. But if these are haunting images, then this whole question of what they are to be attached to, and that's also if you want to go towards the unconscious with this, that's also something where the, the unconscious produces images uh, which which do not necessarily have a correlative which allows them to be explained. And, and that, you know, in the unconscious, it takes place in a certain form of distortion. You know, but, but, but you know, also, also Freud had examined on certain terms as well. Uh, it was condensation, and elements like that, is that you get several images which are put together into the same images. But they're not, take, they can't be taken apart. You can't take apart this image and say, okay, this has this a camera, and this has this a bacon, right? Uh, with superimposed photographs, you can do that because it's a certain trick of photography. But it's not the same as being having to stand in front of a painting and have to deal with the fact that this is the only time you get. There's not two different temporal nodes or narratives that you can resolve this into. And that's part of the deal with the triptychs as well. You know, the whole question of a narrative between them is not present. They, in fact, are like, you know, these are three coexisting temporal nodes before you. And you can contextualize into a narrative, but you're not going to understand painting. You're simply going to understand what the narrative force of writing a history about painting is. At that moment. Yes, super question too. Do you think that uh, rather than art or object, painting could be seen as a non phonetic writing, uh, such as uh, music score writing mm-hmm. or mathematical notation? <coughs> yep. Yep. Yeah, I mean, you painting has a specificity. It's you know, it's medium as color, right? Uh, music is sound, okay? And we talk metaphorically between the two of them, confusing. We talk about the color of sound, right? Uh, we talk we talk about you know the way that um, I take a good example here, the open mouth, right? 
In painting, you will never hear it scream. You will never hear it scream in a painting. And there's something fundamentally frustrating about that. Because if it were to scream, we have a narrative, we have a sound, we can connect it up with language, we're back into some kind of metaphorical way of treating the painting. Now, what Bacon, I think, is doing with this, 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 kind of, this kind of element is saying that there is a specificity to the visual image, which is also present in photography, but it's been so inundated by the ways that we transfer you know, the photograph into certain other ways of understanding it, such as illustration, for example, such as index. And so if these metaphors begin to take over, even the notion of perspective is, is you know, that painting is, is metaphorical. You know, you think about this, it's, what it's made to look like it is a perspective. And then you get some of those annoying photographs, even perspectival photographs, in which uh, the vanishing point is around the corner somewhere, right? Yeah. And those, those, are, those are ultimately very irritating, right? If you want to know what perspective is, it's supposed to be the point of infinity. It's very reassuring. There is an infinity. Right? If it's disappeared somewhere else, it's been distorted. And it's that turn away that Bacon puts right in, in a very physical way in front of us by his use of paint. And also the way that he would paint as well. I mean, we, we, we're dealing with a very, a very rough... And, and, and blunt style of applying, of applying paint to, to, to a canvas where the images are concerned. And it's obviously very precise for him because of the amount of canvases that he destroyed. Right? He probably destroyed as many as actually exist these days. Thank you. You know he destroyed them by cutting out the heads. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. Standing there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very effective. And when they, uh, when they moved his studio from uh, London to Dublin mm -hmm. and they were going through this mass of, mm -hmm. of rubbish yeah. and detritus. They found these canvases with the heads cut out but they didn't find any heads. Mm -hmm. the, so he had destroyed the canvases by cutting out the head but then he destroyed the head. Mm -hmm. So we don't have any of these he, he was heads. He was very particular about how his rubbish was taken out. I mean, some, 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 I think, some, at some point tried to say that if I just take this bag, you know, <laughs> you take the pictures from the floor, but you can't have the bags. <laughs> but, but it is, but it is very, it's very, it's very, it's a, it's a very important point. Yeah. That, that the, the, the thing which makes the painting work is this distorted layers of paint which make the heads. Mm. Yeah. Any other questions? Yeah. yeah. I just wanted to comment on the kind of relationship between Hans Neuf and Jackson Pollock. Mm -hmm. um, prior to coming here, I was looking at the sort of famous film of um, Hans Neuf, but Pollock's painting, mm -hmm. and um, alongside that, the, the concept of uh, the idea that well, well, the, the quote that uh, Pollock said that I, I am nature, that he was in and in the painting, mm -hmm. and the whole thing is a kind of choreographic, I was kind of like notation of, it, of his mm -hmm. existential condition. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the, I, um, I mean, I'm no art historian, but I think it's been said that Nimuth actually destroyed Pollock and, and rather kind of um, ironically, both, both were killed in car crashes. Mm -hmm. Um, <laughs> what, what, what's what, what's going on in um, in that famous bit? Uh, 
Well, maybe one thing one thing you made me think of is to talk about Pollock here, and this may this may help answer uh, that kind of question. Um, Pollock's, Pollock's painting is 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 about you know there's a certain performance of the moment which is essential to it. There's a certain presentness, okay. So you think you think about in terms of those paintings. One of the ways is okay. It's it's certain relations of color, uh, but this is meant to be haphazard. So that the haphazard element has moved towards a level in the painting, which is not you know it's not like looking at distortion here. Like there's no an image which emerges there emerges by chance. No, not completely. You don't actually make choices about paint coming down here and paint coming down there and so on, and which colors he was choosing at whatever moment. But the whole, the whole note of that, the whole idea that there's a certain that art can become a performance, right? But exists in that performance and then is solidified by the canvas forever after that. This is a polish. You always know what a polish was like. I mean, no one mistakes a polish. Uh, except the ones that look like Pollock's from the studio, which have come up recently, but you know, so yeah. certainly where the earlier ones are not. But they, but, but you know, that, that, got, that whole style of genre, that whole style of painting, um, I don't think you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, it just still doesn't work within you know the figurative that Bacon preserves, but preserves as a distortion. I don't think what's going on there is a kind of distortion. I don't, think, I, I don't find that as interesting as Bacon. <coughs> But in a way, kind of, by looking at the um, hands of the move, it kind of strips away the, the layers of Pollock. Mm. We, we read our reading of the material object. Is, mm. so, yeah, but so it's, it's meant to exist as a material object. It is, yeah. so just sure. A material object which has been embedded, a temporal process, into, into, into a moment. It's not just as a canvas. So your sense, of, your, sense of, your sense of time there is a creation. There's not a sense of time in which, there's, say, say, in Bacon, you've got a distortion between the head and two places at the same time, which has been blurred into this kind of movement, in which obviously is dealing with a temporal dislocation. By the way, we measure, for example, we have a narrative that starts here and moves on to the next point or moves to the next point in time. Mm -hmm. um, when, you, when, you, when you think about Pollock in this case, I mean, uh, what's the narrative that's always told about Pollock's paintings? Mm -hmm. right? It's about the production. It's about the process of production, which has then become present to you in the image of this paint, which you see in these large canvases. Mm -hmm. And and that moment becomes, I you know, I think I think a kind of uh, almost like it's a snapshot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like taking a photograph. This is a photograph of what Paul did. And there's an understanding. I'm not saying that he's not, you know, he's not an important painter in this respect. But there's an understanding of art which is at work there and which he is finding the way to try and work against. But I think it's still taking place in a le I think it's taking place in a less interesting way than what Bacon does. Like Bacon changes things. Uh, I think Pollock works at certain limits. I think it's important. It's important, uh, but I think I think you know Bacon managed to grasp an awful lot more in his hand in relationship to what art is and what paintings and why it matters. Do we have any final quick question? Yeah.
taking the object out of context. I mean, that's what dreams do, isn't yeah. it? Mm-hmm. And so you get a parallel with surrealism. Yes, you get parallel with surrealism, but, you know, this this is, this is much more disturbing than surrealism. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there was, I mean, um, Bacon saw the surrealist ex- some surrealist exhibition in Paris when he was mm-hmm. there, and he was aware of it in Berlin as well when, when he was in, in Berlin too. But, um, you know, uh, it... I think surrealism is, has a kind of comfort about it. You know? But maybe you know, not Freud's dreams. Not, not, not Freud's dreams. No, these, these, these are the Freud's nightmares. You know? um, I mean, when, when the, Freud, you know, Freud said something important that I think relates to where I began this lecture about um, um, you know, when you have a contradiction in a dream, it's a force of a desire. Okay? If you think about the contradiction between art and object, that art history can put into, you have to think of what's the desire of art history at that moment. And I think the desire of art history at that moment is to avoid what Bacon calls the fact of appearance. Okay? Yeah. Appearance of facts is okay. It's very, it's very, because the fact is here and the fact is there. But if fact appears in this distortive manner, temporally distortive manner, that's much more disturbing. Yeah, that's, a, that's a really bad dream. <laughs> Uh, let us thank David. Thank you. Thank you.